Welcome to an incomplete guide to world domination, a podcast by creators for creators, because together we can take over the world. I'm your host, Brianna Toiber. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Ian Humphrey, uh, creator of Under the Shroud. Season one is available now, and I'm currently recording season two. We actually just wrapped up a really, really nice recording for that. I'm also working on a show called Arcane Highwaymen, which will be making its public debut sometime in May, I think. Uh, oh, but we'll be putting good. up uh, for our Patreon subscribers. Yeah, yeah. I'm, it's coming together pretty quickly. My sound guy, Ed Kohler, the brilliant, the wonderful, without whom I could not do anything that I do. He has a little bit of free time right now. So we've been able to push <laughs> through the post-production of that pretty quickly. And free time for podcasters is almost a myth. I was about to say free time. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an absurdist reality that I dream of every now and again. Yeah, well, you might be able to achieve it if you didn't have like, like how many different shows are you working on or planning? Okay. So I count a show as developed. If I've written a pilot and a pitch deck and have some sort of outline for a first season. So with all of those in mind, I think I have 12 developed. I'm actively pursuing right now uh, four. Of course, Under the Shroud, our flagship, the tales of Corrin Black, the uh, half-demon junkie cab driver. Just all I'm picturing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a sad sack of shit. He is. Corrin's biggest superpower, like any good noir, is the ability to keep standing up no matter how many times you get knocked down. And he's been knocked down pretty hard. Yeah. I haven't even finished the first season. It gets so, so much worse. And um, and I don't want to give any spoilers away as to what happens to him towards the end. But he starts to pick up other uh, capabilities just in time for things to get, again, just disastrously worse. I got to the part where he was driving around the devil's advocate. Oh, yeah. Really good sound design, but it grossed me out. <laughs> yep. That's what we're aiming for. That's the one right there. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, ugh. <laughs> Yeah. Very well done, but ew. <laughs> One of my favorite terms we've coined in the Shroud universe is sneaker snacks, which comes up in that episode. The idea of just like, oh, they're, you know, if you were a vampire, you'd probably have a term for people, like, you know, maybe cattle or something of that ilk. But I like to keep it more colloquial and try to make it a little more fun. So sneaker snacks are people that you plan to eat. Also, I'm once I finish up this interview, I'm going to be recording with the voice of Moose, the, the uh, guest star from that episode, just later this afternoon. I'm really excited about it. We've got a fun little bit for him in season two that's going to kick quite a lot of ass. That is very exciting to hear. I look forward to, to it. I also need to catch up. But I'm kind of curious, what got you into audio dramas? There's a, a couple of different answers there. I'll start at the, the sort of the, the origins of it. I was a huge Garrison Keillor fan back when I was a little kid, um, which is about as polar opposite to what I do as you can write and still base it in America. But I really loved the <laughs> tales of like Wobegon and the varied other sketches that he did on that show. And it's heyday. I used to record on cassette tapes each episode of Prayer Room Companion as they came out. So there was that. 
And then when I was in early college, mid-college, I did uh, Foley work for a staged reading of 12 Angry Men that was directed by my high school, one of my high school theater teachers and uh, sort of a personal hero of mine, Jason Diaz. And I was really struck by how you could tell these incredible, like very, very big stories with no special effects budget. I know that a lot of audio drama doesn't tend towards extreme drama or, you know, earth shattering events. It tends to be a much more personal medium, but that was what first drew me to it was this idea that you can tell whatever story you want in a performative way. And you're not bound by the constrictions of a stage or again, a special effects, but it's just as, as long as you can write it in a way that is believable and comprehensible, and then throw some cool sound effects, then you can tell any story you want. And that's what really brought me in. After that, I produced a little pseudo podcast thing and blah, 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 before we came to Under the Shroud. And that became sort of the, the, the flagship of our enterprise is just sticking to these tight little stories of this demonic cab driver and his just struggle to get by and maintain his uh, his heroin habit, really. I was about to say sanity, but yeah, no, no. His drug habit. <laughs> yeah. Sanity. Sanity is waivers for Corin. <laughs> and like, I don't know if that could be a thing for anyone in the world you've built. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about possibly doing crossovers with some of my worlds. I'm like, that'll be interesting because I also write very different from how you do. So it's it's going to be really fun when some of my characters beat Corin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I would like to think that Corn can cross over relatively easily. I've done one crossover with Persephone Rose and the the folks from Three Husks in a, a funnel show. It, because his mentality is so much about rolling with the punches and just trying to survive, as long as there's a decent problem for the characters to confront, I think he'd do great. Uh, he, he would certainly enjoy a change of landscape, that's for sure. Uh, you asked about uh, the other projects I'm working on. I'm trying to sort through sort of which one is yeah. worth discussing. I've been trying to develop for a while now a monologue show. One of the troubles with the radio play format is that it's such an intensive editing process. And I would like to find some way to tell the stories more from a monologue or a prose standpoint. So I've been toying with the idea of a show where Corin would find a, like a book of fables or newspaper clippings or notes scratched on the back of a elephant hide, and he and he's just telling those stories off that uh, off that text. Yeah, that could be cool. So that's one that I'm working on right now called Enoch's Fables. Yeah, I thought that'd be a fun, again, relatively easy one to produce because, as we said, free time is limited, but content is also king. So. Yep. I want to I want to keep pumping out stories as much as I can while not delaying it with the production process process if possible. Yeah, I can't even imagine because it's fun of doing two interview shows on my own. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I just can't. <laughs> what uh, what do you edit on? I'm just curious. And I'm sure that people who are listening are curious about the, the podcasting process. What uh, software do you use to edit your stuff? Audacity. Audacity? Mm, yes. Yeah, I, I keep it real simple. Like Die hard loyal. Whenever I transition to more stuff or like something where I can afford to pay for something better, I'll probably switch. But for right now, Audacity is fine. I haven't had to eat any of my files in months now. Yep. Just gets the job done. And 
I don't know, at, at the very least in the recording process, which is where I use it mostly before I ship off the files mm-hmm. to Ed, it's just it it's just simplistic and easy to understand, which I appreciate. I use probably like three or four buttons. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the tricks, I'm like, yeah. There, there's sometimes where I'm like, if I run into a particular like issue, I'll go to YouTube. How do I fix this? And it's like, okay, do this thing. Okay, gotcha. Good, good to go. Yeah, that's a smart way to go about it. One of these days, I might just like take an hour or so and just like watch some videos to learn what some of the other tools do that could be useful. Mm-hmm. With all that free time. Yeah. <laughs> actually end up with most of the free time when i'm at work because i'm just kind of sitting there like there's nothing to do it's so frustrating being in retail yeah you've mentioned before that you work in retail what uh what where do you work i work in barnes and noble at a mall oh, okay i've always wanted to work at a bookstore bookstores are great but bookstores in a mall can be crazy yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Especially during the holidays, Christmas time, you come in, you get behind the register, you do not move until it is break time, and yeah. you don't get to walk away for longer than break time until it's time for you to leave. It's insane. Yeah, these are the joys of working with customers. The, the whole idea that the person who's ringing them out has made any decisions really at all leading up to that point is phenomenal to me. That people think, yes. oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I know that I own the shop, but I also want to talk to you. No, that's not how it works at all. Oh, especially not when there's a corporate. People are like, why did they do this? I'm like, I don't know. They didn't even tell us they did it. <laughs> Quick, let me dial up the emergency services for books. <laughs> Wouldn't it be lovely if those folks existed? No, I'm very grateful that I my current day job is at a family-owned coffee shop. So there's a little bit less of the sense of distance. There's a lot more hands-on relationship with the owners and the management, and you feel like you're part of the machine, but every now and then you're still going to get asked questions where it's like, I don't know, man, I don't make the prices. Like, don't, don't hassle me about it. Okay. Back on topic. Now that we've been thoroughly distracted, I don't remember how that started. Yeah, no, I'm lost as well. I don't know. I can talk about the Shroud universe a little bit. Yeah. Like how, how did the story start? Well, the Shroud universe is one of those things that I've been kind of brewing forever. But under the Shroud, the show specifically, that kicked off when, oh God, I can't remember what it was I was reading or watching, but, oh, right. I was reading James Elroy's American Tabloid, which is a fantastic crime novel. I cannot recommend it highly enough if people uh, go read it. But there is in the show, there's a, I'm sorry, in the book, there's a cab stand that ends up being sort of the the hub for a lot of CIA activity. And I really liked the idea yeah. of, yeah, it, it, and it's, you know, it's a way that they're funneling money. It's The whole thing's based off federalized conspiracy theories, um, particularly related to the JFK assassination. One of the major conspiracy theories is about selling drugs and then using that money to fund the war on Cuba. And the, it's a very, obviously a very dark and gritty book, but um, the cab stand itself ended up being this interesting symbol for connecting this behind closed doors government conspiracy with the streets. And I really liked the idea of that sort of a setting, like a, a hapless cab driver who's stuck in the midst of this intelligence conspiracy and doesn't really know where he fits or where he lands. And because my experience tends to be is it from Baltimore City and let's just say a peripheral experience of the drug market. 
So I started tossing around this idea of a character who would find himself constantly in the grips of larger situations in this urban fantasy universe. And that's where Corin was born. And it was one of those nights when the ideas were flowing and I'm lying in bed trying to get some sleep. And I'm thinking, okay, cool. I can lock this in my memory and write it all down when I wake Your up in the morning. Your brain's just like, no, here are all of the ideas. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I'll get him a lot in bed headed to rest. But this one, this night in particular, it was just a million things were coming out all at once. And then I thought of the idea of having him, um, <laughs> having our junkie demon cab driver set up his own Patreon and very forthrightly saying that the money coming into the Patreon was for drugs. And that was what got me <laughs> out of bed. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm just going to go ahead and write this thing. And I banged out the uh, first draft of the pilot that night. And I've been very happy with it ever since. It's, it's something that's always fascinated me in fiction in general. Are um, We're aware that there are bigger things happening in our very grounded reality world. You know, the things that happen in the White House or, you know, even in the town hall or wherever that have yeah. big import and that we don't know all the details. And I've always loved stories where we see the pebble that gets in somebody's shoe that delays them getting to the train that, you know, throws off the meeting. So a vote doesn't get counted. And then, you know, the world goes to hell. The story of the pebble has always been really interesting to me. And that's in a lot of ways what Corin is, is the sort of observant pebble in the shoe that and having him be uh, many times he ends up sort of stuck between a rock and hard place and forced to be a snitch or an information source of whatever variety for people. And this idea of him being like quintessentially disposable, but also around and aware enough and hooked in enough that everybody's uh, not everybody, but a lot of people want Corin to be working for them. But if he died, no one would shed a tear. And that's, again, a lot of sort of the engine of finding stories that I use. That definitely explains why I've, I've always been wondering about where you got the idea for the couriers, but I'm like, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, again, it's, it's, it's about people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time professionally. Um, <laughs> and that's always a, an idea. That is a very accurate description of yeah. Corin. He's a fun guy. Very accurate. He's a fun guy who probably has earned a vacation or like seven. Yeah. And that's part well, that's part of the fun of this this type of person who I've dealt, I've dealt with a lot of personal life. And I've kind of been that guy from time to time. Is that the the nature of addiction being what it is? It is more important to him to keep grinding away at life so that he can find more of his fix than it is to actually give himself a break. So he just continues to grind himself down to nothing while putting himself in worse and worse situations. There's a going belief that we sort of manifest our own problems. And I will say that Corin does get dragged into things that aren't necessarily his fault, but there's a strong argument to be made that being where he is, where he can be found um, in troubling circumstances is always his fault. Yeah, I mean, he could probably find a job that's not for the couriers. I mean, he'd have to, like, probably move out of Baltimore, but... Oh, yeah. And there's a fun bit with that Um, at the end of season one where I wanted to play with the possibility of him getting up and just leaving. But I won't give anything away there. I hope you guys enjoy the Bat Cruise cycle that happens at the end of season one and Corrin's moral dilemmas. 
actually come to think of it, that was that is the opening episode of season two. So stay tuned. We'll be back March 18th. You cut out right as you said. Oh, God. Date. Wouldn't that be unfortunate? <laughs> uh, March 18th is when season two comes out. You've been cutting out like a little bit, but like not enough to be a problem. But when I heard that, I was like, oh, no, got to make sure. Yeah, that's a valuable, (laughs) valuable piece of information. When you started working on this, what have been some of your friends and family and people's reactions when you tell them what you work on and you introduce them to Corin? That's a great question. So I've led a a colored life, an interesting and, uh, and often dark time it's been. So the few friends from back home who I'm still in touch with have total. nobody is surprised that this is the material I'm writing. If they know me well, my mother, who is my best friend and constant source of support, wasn't shocked at all. The only thing she kept saying is, you shouldn't use your real name. You should use a pen name. Don't use your real name. I did not take that advice. Uh, nothing wrong with owning up to who you are. Yeah, I, I, I think that so much of the difficulty that we run into right now as people is that is some some element of ignoring or denying or putting aside our, our darker tendencies. And while I have definitely had some darker times than most, I don't I don't have any reservations about that. I've certainly got my shame. I've certainly got my guilt. But I think it's important on a societal level that we get more honest about our dark patches. And that's a lot of what Corin's about as well. And this, what the stories are about it, at its core under the shroud is the shroud universe is that it is about redemption and owning up to who you are in your past and, and moving forward from there. So yeah. So long story short, there aren't as many friends and family as there used to be because of my shady shit, but the ones who have listened in totally get it and quite a few who've listened in despite you know ill will have started to wrap their heads around the idea that yeah i'm uh, old man humphrey's starting to get his shit together he's starting to take a good keen look at himself and and em- embrace change sometimes you just need to start getting it down on paper and like pouring your world out there to be able to start sort of figuring things out it's very true i go through that a lot myself sometimes you just got to think on paper oh it's the it's the best thing about writing is discovery whether that's self-discovery or you know i guess walking a mile in another person's shoes to get a character right whenever you you confront the blank page you're always going someplace and that's what I that's one of the things I love about it. That's for damn sure. And there's no telling where you might end up. It's so funny you say that. That's I believe a purposeful or not, a direct quote from The Lord of the Rings. And I was uh, lately I've been listening to the 80s BBC audio drama of The Lord of the Rings and that quote has been ringing out. Heard me the what? Oh, you never heard of this? <laughs> oh my god. This is something. No, and I need it. Where do I find it? Oh my God. Okay. So if you want to put a link in the show notes or something like that, or I'll I'll send a link to you for sure. I recently found all of it on SoundCloud for some rights issue reasoning. The BBC hasn't been able to release it digitally. They have CDs out, they have tapes out, but it's not just sort of like on a streaming service or available online, except where it's been pirated. It's, uh, I think it came out in 81 or the early 80s. And it's, a point-by-point dramatization from the books. The only moment they're missing is the infamous Tom Bombadil. They've actually added in 
several story points from the supplemental materials like um uh, was it called lost tales or something like that a Silmarillion. Oh it is gosh. far more accurate <laughs> than the movies are which for a nerd like myself has some valuable they did a pretty good job they mostly all the points i mean they could have done better but they, they did a pretty good job and they were constrained by hollywood world and i get that but the story in the in this uh bbc presentation is far more accurate and a sticking point for me they get aragorn a lot better my biggest issue with the movies was always that, for, again, for reasons of appeasing the Hollywood machine and producers and what have you, Aragorn's character, while acted perfectly, is written to be a little bit more on the fence about this whole I'm going to be king of the world thing. And that's not accurate to the books at all. Yeah, I noticed that when I was reading through the series. Yeah, he's much, much more set on his path. Like, there's not a lot of questions. There's some question of, like, is he going to make it? But it's not a question of if he should try. And the, the BBC presentation gets that much better. I highly recommend it to everybody. Get the tapes, get the CDs. It's my favorite audio drama ever made. Again, tells the story perfectly. Fun fact... Ian Holm plays Frodo in the BBC uh, rendition and then played Bilbo in the movies. Oh my gosh. Isn't that great? I had the moment of, why does that name sound familiar? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought that was a delightful little fact. That is so cool. I think actually, if you don't mind, um, the Lord of the Rings is a nice topic to sort of look because that was a lot of, when I was creating the Shroud universe was in response to the classic fantasy mythology. Now that the, you know, the spell is broken and everybody's accepted the fantasy can be rad thank you game of thrones we really appreciate it martin you killed it a lot of the <laughs> older motifs that tolkien sort of gave life to by harnessing folklore and mythology but the elves and the dwarves and that sort of stuff they've become something that's part of our cultural subconscious like, or we're all aware of those things and it was important to me when developing my own fantasy universe that to try to use reference points that everybody is aware of certainly use familiar words but not necessarily races so to speak that everybody's hyper familiar with which gives me a little bit more leeway two major examples being titans and harpies titans are the sort of core creatures of this urban fantasy universe they're a patriarchal society they look mostly like normal humans they run the police force they run the bureaucracies they are in charge and i wanted to have that sort of uh fascistic uh, backing to my universe and the term titan just sort of like worked really well it conjures up an imagery of something that's like big and scary but that imagery is vague enough to where you can twist it however you need to right right and we don't when i think titan the closest i get is atlas you know or something somebody of this like some of this ilk mm -hmm. who's just big and masculine and in control and we have this sense that they are kind of the enemy, even though the Titans, obviously, in the story are, are uh, sympathetic. One of the major sources I had was in uh, the movie Remember the Titans when Denzel Washington says they were mightier, mightier even than the gods. And I like this idea of a race. I love that, that movie. Oh, it's a fantastic film. So especially because I, I grew up in East Tennessee. So like, I'm just. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that's got to be close to home. I actually grew up in the town where they enriched the uranium for the atomic bomb as part of the Manhattan Project. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, we had a running joke about the radiation bubble keeping out all the snow. (laughs) (laughs) I like that bit a lot. So so I I like the idea of having this patriarchal society that sort of runs the show. And because I grew up in a sort of, uh, I grew up in a feminist commune that was a little bit off the grid. Plenty of stories there that we won't go into. Sentence I was not expecting to hear today. (laughs) Right. It was, it was an interesting way to grow up. And again, I have so many stories, but something that is central to who I am as a person is aligning myself with this sort of revolutionary feminist sensibility that sounds like a humble brag or whatever the current terminology is for just shitting out my ass, but I think humble brag is the word. Yeah, we'll go with that. But it's a very real part of who I am. I mean, there were, you know, my mom would throw women's gatherings, which were 300 plus women would go to a campsite for Memorial Day weekend. They wouldn't wear clothes. They would do arts and crafts and workshops about developing a relationship with your period or your moon cycle and play a lot of music. And I was the little prince running around at about crotch level. So being a part of that culture of we're going to change the world, we're going to make it a better place for women, and we're going to do it right now, that's how I came into the world and first encountered like large groups of people in society. Just kind of got thrown in the deep end and like, have fun. <laughs> I mean, well, yes and no, because I would argue that any society or culture that you're in is the deep end. And while mine was different, I didn't know that at the time. I had no sense really that there was, I I knew that there were other children out there and that I wasn't getting to play with them or meet them, that I was fairly isolated, but I didn't realize how different it was. I just didn't have a reference point for what different would be. We also weren't TV people, for instance. So there was, you know, I had Mark Twain and Lord of the Rings, and that was really about it. So anyway, so when I was developing the Shroud universe, it makes sense that I would have this patriarchal masculine bureaucracy that's running the joint. And then I wanted a feminist, rebellious, revolutionary culture on the other side of it. And I came up with the idea for the harpies. And I've gotten some criticism or at the very least questions in the past for using that term because it is so inherently speaking negative fetid connotations. It has a sort of, yeah, like you said, connotation to it. And there's another word for that that I'm trying to think of that I'm- Euphemistic? Not that word. (laughs) (laughs) My brain likes to just dump words when I'm trying to think of them. And I'm like, this isn't helpful. (laughs) Right. For example, a synonym for harpy could be the word bitch. And that's what I wanted to harness there is that we're all sort of aware that Harpy is this Greek mythological creature. But when we use it in common parlance, it just means that shitty woman over there. And if you had patriarchal, masculine, fascistic society running a magical universe, and then there was a culture that was Amazon-esque and powerful and magical and potent. Of literal Harpies. Yeah, you'd want a smear campaign. That's what you'd do. So I so anyway, so the harpies are this aerial slash aquatic race. I usually say they're they're like an all women's X-Men in that each of them is slightly different from the other. They have varied magic powers. They're not as common as one would think. That was inspired by a conversation by an interview I heard with some folks talking about anti-Semitism and how if you were to listen, if you were to guess at the Jewish population in this country, based on the concerns of people of anti Semites about Judaism, 
you would think that there was a huge population when in fact they're a relatively small group of people in this country compared to how they small. Yeah. I think there's actually a slightly larger population around where I live. Oh yeah. And in, in Baltimore city where I grew up, it was not nearly so, so small of a population. And in case there were any doubt, if I, if I were to raise my children with a religion, it would be Judaism. That's just awesome. But but what uh, what struck me was this idea of like making the news making this big fuss about you know this harpy population and how you know nobody knows what they're gonna do and crazy women gone mad when actually there's like not a whole hell of a lot of them yes they are potent and powerful but you could go a ways without even seeing one and I just like the idea for this sort of quiet revolution that's happening in the midst of this world and this culture. And then you've got a bunch of people kicking up a fuss about it. And they're yeah. like, kind of dumb because it's like you're, it's like you're freaking out. And there's like right. seven of them. Right. Well, and that's the nature of free, fear tactics <laughs> in politics is as long as we keep you angry at somebody that you can't, don't see often and can't identify with, both because they're a little different, but also because they're just not around, then you can keep the fear alive and you know, keep the war machine and the money machine running. Yeah. And I liked having that dichotomy at the core of what this universe is, which isn't to say that all the Titans are Nazis. There are certainly plenty of them who are, but life's more complicated than that. You have people, you know, there were plenty of folks in Germany who voted for Hitler and then realized they'd made a mistake or, you know, have a different, you know, have a more complex view of the world or what have you. Yeah. It's always nice when people remember that he was actually elected. Yeah. Yeah. He he did not seize power. He was elected. Anyway. Well, I'm pretty sure, like, I heard somewhere that, like, on the voting card, if you voted against him, they asked you to, like, put your address or something. That could just be, like, something that I'm not remembering correctly, but I think I heard that somewhere. I wouldn't be terribly shocked. I am curious, though. I'm going to need to look into that just because history is fun. It's particularly right now. It's nice to know how totalitarian takeovers like, whoo-hoo. Anyway, so back to the comparison to Lord of the Rings, I, I didn't want to try to do, to create that dichotomy and create this fresh universe using the standard elves and dwarves and hobbits and whatever what have you dynamic i wanted to take something fresh and yet familiar to sculpt out so i could play with the politics whoever i wanted to and make uh take whatever reference points i wanted and i also just have fun like for instance i wrote into an episode that walt disney the really racist crows a dumbo i just made it that walt disney actually uh, did you do you recall the racist crows from dumbo I don't know if I I don't remember if I've heard that one, but go ahead. Anyway, they're, they're just these like really nasty black stereotypes. I have the racist crows. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I just like for funsies, I in an episode, I made it canon that Walt Disney actually really made those and they are alive and well and they serve the legions of hell and had the fun experience of writing in a whole bunch of them getting killed. Because that was just a funny bit for me. Like, eh, killing off racist crows. That's cool. <laughs> That's always fun. And lots of puns there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my, my point being that I try to play with a blend of pop culture and mythology, and which would be trickier to do if I was just doing more of a traditional urban fantasy route. Um, that night, for anybody who's interested in urban fantasy, read Jim Butcher and the Dresden Files, if you oh, haven't yeah. already. Yeah, and he's done such a masterful job at weaving in like very 
honest portrayals and very well-researched portrayals of mythology and folklore. I wanted to do something that was also sort of in reaction to that, that takes the, the, the icons and then I put my weird dark humor spin on it. Yeah. Which has bitten me in the ass. <laughs> I feel like there's a story there. Uh, the biting me in the ass thing? Yeah. It's not, it's not so much a story as just that because I've gone out of my way to write the universe in, a, in such a, an odd fashion, sometimes people don't get it. And that's just a reality that, that I have to battle is making sure that things are clear. Because, you know, like I said, like the easy example being the harpy thing. I've had people tell me that like, oh, I was interested. And then I heard you using that word. And I was just kind of turned off and thought like, oh, this guy is anti-women. Like, no, I'm not a misogynist. I, you know, pretty much exactly the opposite. I'm just drawing a parallel. So some of those confusions have, uh, have, have hit me. Made your life more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. But complications were the fun anyway. Like a lot of what you're talking about makes me think of that one quote about how writers, we make the strange familiar and the familiar seem strange. It's not a direct quote, but I'm sure you've seen that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is, I think it is the quote. It's something like that. It's in those words. It's one of my favorites right next to the one that's characters are like geodes to see what they're made of. You must break them. Ooh, ooh I like that a lot. That's a yeah, I use it whenever people are like, why are you so mean to your characters? I'm like... What, that's your job. I find it frustrating, honestly, when people say things like that. Just like, this is, this is what we do. Your job is to... What's the old, the old thing about um, the most basic elements of a story are create a character, put him in a... Oh, sorry. Put your character in a tree, throw rocks at him, get him out of the tree, and that's the basics of any story. Yeah. You just you throw problems and then you watch them deal with those problems. That's that's the job. Yeah, that reminds me. I had a friend of mine, he does a lot of he plays a lot of D and D and he had this one campaign where like apparently these characters weren't getting along. I'm like, well, you could always in a session drop them down in a well and force them to work together to be able to get out. Exactly. Exactly. That's what you got to do. There's, you can always create a bigger problem. I've, I'm sure you've experienced this in retail. I know I have in the service industry. One of my favorite uh, things is when you meet somebody that you just know you don't like and you have to work with them. Yep. And yep. it sucks. But then you've got a line at the door or everybody's getting three tables at once or whatever the hell it is. And by the end of that shift, you are patting that same person on the back and you're ready to go grab a beer together because you've survived together. Go get a beer or just go sit down and not move for eight hours. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but the, at the very least, those uh, the next time you work together, you're going to be sharing the tales of like, you know, the customer with three heads and a million children. You know, it's there's always going to be that that note of camaraderie in every interaction from that point forward, even if work complications come up and you don't end up being friends, that moment still exists forever. I've, I've got an example <laughs> of that then from the Shroud universe. So when I was building up the idea of the cab stand, I knew that I would have to have a boss who would be the foil to Corin, who would be, you know, somebody who pushes him around a little bit and tells him what to do and has a, a different attitude. Uh, Gibbons. But it can ultimately be relied on at a pinch. Right. Well, relied on at a pinch and also their relationship. I knew from the outset that I wanted to put them at odds in the beginning because I mm -hmm. knew for I knew for sure that the longer they were working together and the more I threw at them, the closer they would get. 
again yeah. another thing that comes up in the season finale which you should listen to it's gonna be awesome get there i promise <laughs> oh, oh i'm mostly speaking to your fans but yes you'll enjoy it too <laughs> when i was writing the, the current episode arc that i'm recording right now which is the fallen succubus cycle which is gonna be a lot of fun when i was working on that and writing the dialogue between corn and gibbons there was a moment Actually, when I was editing that dialogue where I looked and I was like, oh, they are awfully familiar. This is not a conversation between a guy and his boss. This is a conversation between two guys who are friends dealing with problems. And then I realized that like, oh, but that's actually okay. Because by this point, they have seen enough together that they they do have a fair amount of that. And I'll come back later and do some episodes or some moments where Gibbons has to reassert his control over Corin. But for the time being, mm -hmm. the problems are bad enough that Gibbons can be a sympathetic ear and be a support system. It's that moment where, like, everything's going to hell. So you're like, yeah, protocol doesn't matter. I'm just going to talk to you like a person. And then everything's fine. It's like, no, you don't get to talk to me like a person. I'm your boss. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the natural bucking will happen. Uh, I haven't written this bit yet, but I would assume that... Gibbons starts laying down the law and then Corin is going to go, what the fuck, man? Last week you were helping me out with this crazy ass thing. And Gibbons will say, yeah, that was last week. This is your job. Get your shit together. And then we'll go from there. That's kind of like the boss. That's like really nice when you have the flu. But then when you come back and you're just tired, like, ah, yeah, nope, you're still doing it. Yeah, exactly. Which I would argue is kind of the best kind of boss. I mean, a boss who is too frequently your friend, it can get problematic because then when yeah. they inevitably have to tell you to do something it can get emotional as opposed to just straightforward instruction which is i would say more valuable an incomplete guide to world domination is directed and produced by brianna toyber as part of pseudonym social a creative podcast network music is by patrick chester of chester studios you can find more of his work at chesterstudios.net. If you would like to help support our show, you can find us at patreon.com slash pseudonymsocial. You can also leave a review on iTunes to make our show easier to find for those who need it. For more information on the other shows produced by Pseudonym Social, please check out our website at pseudonymsocial.wordpress.com.